Many first world militaries have developed and in some cases deployed autonomous killer robots in land, sea, and air for well over a decade. Uh, some people are of the belief that maybe this will save human lives if robots can sort of do the combat for us. But there's an entirely other camp that's of the belief that uh, if there is an arms race of machines built to kill, the longer-term detrimental consequences far outweigh any good that can be done. And our guest this week in the podcast is in that camp. Noel Sharkey is a professor at the University of Sheffield uh, in the United Kingdom. He's also founder or co-founder of the uh, International Committee for Robot Arms Control, uh, taking this conversation to the UN and internationally around creating a treaty and a, a global ban uh, on autonomous killer robots. In this particular interview, he speaks to not only some of the, the particularly interesting uh, developments in the domain of autonomous killer robots, some of which I was unaware of myself, despite my own relatively ardent research in this domain, as well as how a group might come together to convince nations through the UN and, and other platforms for global policy uh, debate uh, to adhere to such a uh, an agreement and to hopefully keep us all safer. At least that's Noel's perspective. And in this interview, he articulates it quite well. So I enjoyed this episode. I hope you will too. Without further ado, we'll roll right in. So Noel, I, I know today's topic is going to be around sort of the militarization of artificial intelligence and robotics. And I suppose uh, progress in that field is a very arguable term. I suppose advancement is a more... Um, uh, contextually neutral uh, term. Um, in your own opinion, with, with these being some of your own primary concerns uh, with your organization and with your, your, uh, your own studies, um, where have you seen sort of the farthest leaps in advancement in the militarization of, of AI and robotics in the last 10 years? Well, there's been a lot of stuff for quite a long time, the last maybe 15, 16 years, uh, with automated weapon systems like the phalanx that appears on most U.S. Uh, fighter ships. But um, that is, that's on the ship. It's like a massive machine gun. And if there's a, a, a swarm attack, as they call it, then the, the commander can switch that on. But they're there on the deck watching it to supervise it, shooting down incoming. Yep. From that point on, nobody has any input into it, but it can be switched off. And there are various of these around the world. And there are also missile shooting down systems like the Iron Dome uh, and the Raytheon system. I can't remember what it's called. The Patriot system as well. But then you've got the Mantis system in Germany, which shoots down mortar shells. So these are all defensive weapons. And the big progress recently has been in mobile weapon systems. They haven't been deployed yet, to my knowledge but they're certainly well underway. And the US is, is far ahead in the field. Well, I'm not sure about far ahead, but it's, it's ahead at the moment. And they have a number of developments. Uh, one of these is the X-47B, and that's like a sort of fighter jet, a small fighter jet that there's um, that, uh, no, no room for a pilot whatsoever. And that's been in advanced testing, taking off and landing from aircraft carriers, and it can refuel in the air. If it, it's about 10 times the reach of an F-25, the normal fighter jet on these aircraft carriers. And as a roboticist, I look at this in awe. It's an incredible piece of technology, Indeed. really. Yeah. Uh, but its purpose is not so good. Uh, the U.S. at the moment is being completely outmanned and outgunned in the Pacific. And the Chinese also have aircraft carrier busting missiles now. So the idea would be to move the fleet further 
further back and send in these autonomous weapons. And everybody talks about swarms of them, so they're force multiplier. You send in a big swarm of these. So yeah. you've got that. And on the ground, hmm. you've got the Crusher, which is developed by Carnegie Mellon. And that's like a seven and a half ton truck. And you see a picture of it with a machine gun on top. And it's called the Crusher because it can crush Cadillacs. That's what you see on YouTube if you want to look there. Huh. And that grew out of the DARPA Grant Challenge. And the other development from the DARPA Grant Challenge that's perhaps more famous is the Google car. So that was a race across the Mojave Desert. And that, that's what resulted. They're also in the DARPA have developed. That's the research agency, the research wing of the Pentagon. Yep. And they've also developed... Um, submarine hunting submarine so an autonomous submarine that will sink other submarines and there's a lot of work now on lots of small ships working together autonomously in what they call a swarm again so that's the u.s developments the uk have the tyrannus which is an intercontinental call fully unmanned and it's been tested in australia flying over a wide area looking for targets not not to shoot them of course yet uh, because they haven't weaponized any of these systems yet. Then you've got China with its air-to-air -air combat aircraft, the Anjin, which has been developed over the last eight years. Russia have developments that we're not so clear about because they're not an open information society like the United States. Yeah, yeah. But they have they have um, their own <coughs> DARPA now that opens, especially for robotics. And uh, all reports coming out of Russia suggest that they, and this is from Russian papers, that they're using autonomous robot uh, soldiers, as it were, driving around their ballistic missile bases to defend them and shoot people who intrude. There's uh, Israel have the Guardian, South Korea have the SDR, which is on the border between North and South Korea, pointing into the demilitarized zone, which can be fully autonomous. It's sort of like a machine gun on a big stalk with sensors on it that is a two-mile range. Um, a two-mile range? Wow. So, yeah, that, two, so two mile range. like an so autonomous little... An yeah. in the zone, you're going to be shot. That's for two miles. So, yeah, I mean, I suppose the uh, kind of a planted machine gun that can detect movement and point and shoot, maybe you'd say, ah, you know, there's a chance 15 years ago we had that. Two-mile range, what is this thing shooting? into the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea. Hmm. Now, North Korea is still officially at war with South Korea, so, you know, they're worried about a big swarm attack of, of North Korean soldiers and tanks coming through, so they've lined these up, and they say at the moment they're looking through the cameras uh, and detect to see who's approaching, but if need be, they could switch them to autonomous mode. And it's the same with the Israeli Guardian. At the moment, they're looking through the cameras controls the border, but again, it has a switch to autonomous mode. So, so it's all getting there, and, and this is all last 10 years. The U.S. plans have been saying this since 2001. They're just coming to reality now. Yeah, so so different developments in different domains and, and, and different different countries with different names for their machines here. Um, so a, a, lot, a lot in just the last 10 years, and, and a lot that can be maybe as it couldn't 10 years ago, uh, be switched into autonomous mode. Now, I suppose the, the claims made by a seemingly responsible first world country would be that, you know, they're looking through the thing or whatever the case may be. But, you know, uh, kind of the, 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 the chess move here, of course, is that you'd want to be able to make it so you don't have to if, if everybody else has, has machines uh, that, that they don't have to manually look through you. There's, again, the, the whole kind of arms race um, 
concept. Uh, which of these is, is sort of most troubling to you? I mean, luckily, we haven't had any robot wars or swarm attacks uh, that I'm currently aware of uh, in, in, in any, any country as far as I know. Um, which of these technologies do you see as most threatening or, or detrimental to sort of civilized life on Earth in general? I mean, wh- which, which of them are, are most on your own radar, uh, for no pun intended here? All of them. Mm. I think they're all a deadly threat to global security. But just picking up on something you said there, because there's some, some funny talk about a person in the loop. In the United States Department of Defense Guidelines 3000.9 Directive, DOD Directive 3000.9, they say that they'll always make sure there's an appropriate level of human judgment. The UK government have said they'll make sure that there's always a human in the loop somewhere. Now that sounds okay, but where? Because when you read the rhetoric uh, coming out of military documents, it's all about if we can't complete the mission uh, because somebody has jammed the communications, if we've got sophisticated enemies, somebody will jam the communications immediately, be able to complete the mission on their own. So. What do they mean, appropriate levels of human judgment? Yeah. The lawyer, Dan Saxon, has pointed out that appropriate judgment might mean no judgment at all. Yeah, that's a tough one to define. And if, if it's not defined, um, then then uh, what are you going to do? And at the same time, you know, you can sort of, and I'm, I'm not here to call military people are bad and government people are good, or I, that's not uh, that's not my shtick. Uh, but, but to be frank, I can understand to some degree um, how they'd want to keep it somewhat vague because they might know in the back of their own minds whoever it is UK US Russia well Russia I guess doesn't doesn't you know they wouldn't necessarily have to say that kind of thing anyway but whatever country we're talking about you know in the back of their minds they'd know do we want to permanently limit ourselves from these technologies what if these become uh, imperative to our own survival because we're attacked by such technology. So you can see how it wouldn't inherently just be, you know, evil, horrendous people who would want to make that somewhat vague. It might be folks that are concerned with security, but then, of course, we get into this sort of arms race uh, game. And it sounds like from your perspective, um, there there really isn't any boundary at all to ensuring that there's a human in the loop when, when the blank hits the fan. No, that's why you need an international agreement among all the nations, because otherwise people will do black testing and all sorts of sneaky stuff. So, so we must uh, we must push for a, an international treaty to ban these weapons. But the UK, for instance, has said they won't support a ban of the weapons, nor will they support a moratorium, because they're not planning to use them without someone in the loop. And does that not sound like crazy talk to you? If you're you're not going to use them, why would you want not want to ban other people from using them on you? Yeah, I mean, it, it uh, intuitively, their options open. That's yes, yes, intuitively, it doesn't make that much sense. Uh, but, but again, like you said, they're keeping their, their options open. Um, I think everyone's, you know, nobody wants to be kind of the weak nation. I think it's fortunate that we haven't had any serious gargantuan first world, uh, you know, combat anywhere near the degree of the world wars or anything along those lines. I, I think if we did. Uh, today, uh, I think I think as a as a as a global society, hopefully we've uh, I I have an inkling that Pinker is right, and that maybe we have a little bit less of a propensity um, towards violent nationalism than maybe we would have 100, 200, 300, 400 years ago. Um, but you know things could happen, and I suppose that's why they want to keep their options open in terms of 
where and how we could move forward. I mean, I think uh, the, the, the general, what the masses might be aware of is, hey, you know, uh, let's get all the countries to sign a thing that says um, get rid of autonomy in any weaponry uh, what, whatsoever, um, and that maybe if all the countries really smartened up, they would, uh, they would do it. Of course, that'd be a radically oversimplified version of kind of the story here. From your own perspective, Noel, with this being a, a grand focus for you, um, how could we even begin to approach this problem? Uh, you know, it's, we don't just send emails to some senators and, and kind of get their names on some papers and call it no, a day. Yeah. No, well, quite. Uh, I mean, I, I started writing about this, I suppose, for newspapers in 2007 and started giving a lot of talks to the military and politicians. And, and we formed the International Committee for Robot Arms Control for yep. this purpose in 2009. And our biggest aim then was simply to get international discussion, not between us and the international community, but within the international community itself. And, you know, it was a bunch of, we were a bunch of academics, and that's not easy. We all went out and gave talks and wrote lots of papers and did interviews like this, etc. But they were tended to be in the technology pages. Yeah. And then in 2012, Human Rights Watch came to visit me in Sheffield and said, look, you know, we're concerned about this issue. Could we have some meetings about it? And we did. And we met in New York in 2012, October, with all of the people. It was a big celebration of getting landmines banned. And all those NGOs, non-governmental organizations, yep. were all there. And I gave them a talk. And then a group of us met afterwards. And that was the Nobel Women's Initiative with lots of Nobel laureates, Human Rights Watch, Article 36, Landmine Action Canada. There were nine groups, and I was representing International Committee for Robot Arms arms control and we decided at that point let's initiate a global campaign uh, called stop the killer robots uh, stop killer robots yes yes and yes the campaign to stop killer robots is the official title and so we launched that in 2013 in april and very soon after that with all these people on board suddenly we had the power to go and knock on doors and talk to ambassadors talk to delegations they had masses of contacts we talked to the French ambassador, who was at that point the head of this committee called the CCW at the UN. And that committee is empowered to ban certain classes of weapons. And the, the French were the presidents of that. So we talked to the French ambassador. And then the US uh, head of the EU delegation got in touch. And we met with the DOD and various representations. And they said they would help us get this through the to the CCW. So we met that in November, and there's 121 nations there. There were 117 there that's grown. And any one of those nations could veto it. So it was nail-biting. But they accepted the mandate, and they held an expert meeting at, at the CCW in Geneva that, that April for four days. I opened it with a debate. And then they held another meeting this year for five days. So 80 countries... Now, stood up and talked about this. ICRAC succeeded in its mission statement of getting international discussion. We've now changed it to looking for a ban. And um, we had, we've had 80 lots of people stand up. These are national representatives at the UN. And we're moving forward now, and we're waiting for more decisions in November. So this is probably the hottest, well, it is the hottest topic now in the end disarmament circles. So we're moving forward with it, definitely. That's good. And not quickly, but it's moving forward. That's, I suppose uh, global policy change is uh, 
probably a little bit more arduous uh, than than other tasks. Um, but but it's yes. I think discussion. I I am in complete agreement with you, at least from my own limited knowledge of of. Uh, you know, global diplomacy, which is uh, about as limited as it gets. That that I think it's starting with discussion is is really where things begin. And it and I, I clearly, as someone who just follows media, uh, can detect that. And it sounds like, from your perspective, um, in a a, uh, a global policy standpoint, the talks are being had, the awareness exists, and now there's other initiatives to push forward with. If we were to create a ban. Um, how would it roll out? How would it roll forth? How would it be enforced in any way, shape, or form? What are your thoughts there? I know those are not easy questions, but I think pondering some of these future scenarios um, is borderline critical to sort of discerning which ones might be the best ones to, to take a swing at when the opportunity arises. How would this go about? How would, a, how would a ban, how would the transparency, how would the enforcement actually be implied in this wacky world uh, across all those various nations? Well, the first thing that happens is the next step is, is a group of governmental experts to get together because it's like we take the horse to water, but it has to drink itself. So yes. so what we do is we have side events. We have a lot of discussions. We, we get collections of these uh, amba- ambassadors together and we you know meet with them and talk to them and we push them. But ultimately, these guys have to sit down together and thrash out an agreement or a treaty. And... We may not agree with this because, like, uh, the people who got landmines banned didn't agree with the treaty that was pulled out of the CCW. So they took it outside of that, got 150 nations together and hammered it out and got their own treaty. Then this becomes customary law and everybody has to obey it. Now, uh, so so really it's all, all up to the nations themselves to do the definitions. We can push them, we can go there, we can speak out, we can offer expert advice, but we can't really do this. They have to do it. Now, once it's done, the main thing about this is it's it's going to be difficult to see that everybody has complied, as you say. Yes. But that's the case with a lot of weapons, especially chemical weapons. Of course. It's very difficult to investigate chemical weapons, really. I mean, it's just a pile of chemicals. You can put them, to, you can keep them all separate and put them together as you need them. But what you do with an international treaty ban is you create an incredible stigma. Now, for instance, when Syria used chemical weapons, it was the first time that the United States and Russia got together and stamped on them and said, you can't do this. So this kind of stigma means there's, you know, all the other other nations will gang up on you if you use these weapons. Yeah. And also, what it means also is that you can't start export. Worry about not just an arms race, but a about proliferation created by big greedy companies that want to make billions of dollars profit with them. So you will have export bans, you won't be able to do any of that stuff. So it might not be perfect, uh, but it's a lot better than not having it and everybody going full out and developing them. No, I, I'm, I'm so, in agreement with you there. Yeah, what were you saying? So, so well, I was going to say why, why I don't want them, why we want them banned, really, and because some people might say, well, aren't these a good thing? It stops our soldiers being killed. It uh, means that you know robots could fight robots and save people's lives and that kind of thing. Well, all of this is very short-termist because people talk about uh, you know being them being used ethically and this kind of thing because and they say silly things like robots won't seek revenge, they won't get angry, they won't commit rape, they'll do what they're told. And when people say this kind of thing, 
they're forgetting that what you're t- talking about here is a weapon. You're not talking about a, a, a little thinking robot that you see in a science fiction movie. And so the same people who would seek revenge, seek get angry, uh, the same people who would use rape as a weapon of war will now have a new weapon to help them in these endeavours. And the idea of robots fighting robots is crazy. Uh, that would save, uh, save lives because no one would ever accept that. We already have total asymmetrical warfare where we go into Iraq, bomb the hell out of Baghdad, win the, the war completely, and then 10 years later leave with our tail between his leg, our legs because people won't give up. And yeah. so the big concern really is for global security. And ICRAC delivered a leaflet, which they can find on our webpage, icrack.net and if you search around there you'll find our leaflet which is 10 problems for global security and I'm not going to go over them all here but it's it's a notion of this idea of war getting so fast this is one of the big notions of this make these autonomous weapons because warfare is getting so fast humans don't have time to think yep. we'll slow down for goodness sake because when it's going that fast you've got everybody's got automated weapons you're going to trigger accidental wars. But the, the big thing here really is for global security is that, you know, you're going to get this arms race, you're going to get all sorts of uh, proliferation going on so that everybody has it. When everybody has it, or at least major powers have it, think about the possibility of triggering an accidental conflict. These things aren't that good. You can easily be hacked, spoofed, they can crash. If you've ever used a, a P see you'll know all about that so what happens when they meet and you trigger an accidental conflict well one of the big things here that's driving this is that soldiers and forces in general are not fast enough in their thinking for modern warfare because it's getting faster and faster and faster using unmanned systems so at this kind of high speed these systems meet each other accidentally trigger a war it's all over before any of us know about it and a lot of people have died so so that's a kind of crazy thing but even crazier is this notion of using swarms of them so you get a swarm of them coming in and it meets somebody else's swarm then what's going to happen because they will have secret programs on board combat algorithms that determine how they fight and they will never give that information away and any computer scientist will tell you just like in the wall street flash crash when unknown programs meet what will happen Uh, i don't know and i would suggest that no one else on the planet knows so this is a very dangerous state of affairs and it's very short-sighted for people to put the blinkers on particularly u.s people saying that you know uh this will give us a military edge again because we've lost the edge with missile technology and it's blinkered because they're not thinking about the implications for global security of our planet you might have an edge for a short time but overall it's going to be worse for all of us and the end point of this i'm not so much worried about super intelligent robots becoming conscious and taking over the world what i'm worried about is just pure automation of the military pure auto so you get automated warfare, which is not going to be good for anybody. It's going to end in tears. Yeah, I, I, it does, it does seem, uh, and and I would, I have not heard in full force the arguments 
um, for this kind of militarization, to be frank, and, and I, can't, I can't bash them without hearing them thoroughly, and even then I suppose I would aim to understand where they're coming from, but I certainly understand your impetus here where, you know, gaining the advantage, because we've lost the advantage in missile technology, um, is, is just the proliferation of a, a increasingly fast arms race. I suppose my deep hope here, Noel, is that um, maybe for one of the first times in, in technological development, uh, maybe military technological development, um, we, uh, we can really slam the brakes on you know, an, an entire field of furthered technologies. I think AI will continue to develop in so many ways. Robotics will continue to develop in so many ways. This could, of course, be militarized. I'm hoping that if there was a treaty, there could be sufficient transparency um, and, and suffici sufficient enforcement and, and hopefully sufficient goodwill and cosmopolitanism of, of, yes. of just human flipping beings um, that, that, that we could avoid bending that technology down that road if we can all shake hands uh, and, and, and kind of commit to, to avoiding that. So I think that's, that's sort of my, my deep hope is that if we yeah. do create that, that we can, we, can, we can hang tight because I do think that, you know, the farther down the arms race we go, technology is not slowing down. And, and I agree with you. I think at some point it really seems like disaster is the inevitable consequence of that kind of continued better than the Joneses kind of approach. Yeah, I'm an optimist, really. I don't meet evil people about these. I mean, I have a very different view of the military than I had, say, 20 years ago. I spent a lot of time with them. They're just as concerned about the ethical issues as anyone else. They don't want to go killing a lot of civilians. I mean, you might get the odd rogue, of course, but generally speaking, pretty good. And, and there's a lot of support in the military for getting rid of these weapons. People don't trust them, really. Yeah, and then I think... And they're well, not reliable enough. And AI is such a good subject. I mean, I, I'm passionate. I mean, it might not sound it when I'm talking about this, but I'm passionate about robotics and AI and how much they could help humanity in the future in many fields, like in global warming, monitoring environmental changes in medicine. You know, all those fields could be a great advantage to us. And we don't even, in the campaign, we don't even mind the, the military using autonomous robots. I mean, they're cleaning the hulls of ships with them. They should be using them for bomb disposal, taking out those improvised explosive yeah. devices. Yeah, Using, getting soldiers back off the battlefield to, to you know, wound, dress their wounds, etc. It's only the kill decision that bothers us. That's the only aspect of autonomy that really is of concern here. And I think there's good reason for that. It's a, it's a tough, it's a tough trajectory to sort of make a swing as to what kinds of policies will be aggregately beneficial for man. Uh, that is is awful hard. But I think uh, on the aggregate, it, it would seem as though the actual initiation of violence, sort of preventing things there. Uh, doesn't necessarily imply the halting of technology as a whole, but but maybe implies the halting of of sort of the the angels of our worst nature, so to speak, and and sort of yes. again, if we can if we can kind of stem the origins of of conflict in terms of action, uh, hopefully that that will uh, that will allow us to develop AI and, and robotics, as you had mentioned, for for our betterment. If we don't, for lack of of better uh, terms, if we don't blow ourselves up before then, so. I'll uh, I'll certainly be. Right. Yeah, go ahead. Also, but there's also there's also the really big worry here about uh, this civil world because although we're trying to get this international treaty ban at this committee called the CCW, it would only ban the weapon for military use, strangely. So police could still use them mm. if they were legal. Curious. And 
just like tear gas, police can use tear gas, the military can. And, and that's a worry because we're already beginning to see developments like there's a company in South Africa, this really worries me, called Desert Storm. And they have made these like uh, octocopter robot weapons, not weapons. Well, they're sort of weapons. But what they do is they fire tear gas, they fire pepper spray, and they fire pl big plastic balls. And they made them specifically for getting at miners who are striking. So they've sold them to 25 mining companies so they can bust strikes. And they say they've sold them extensively abroad to law enforcement agencies, but they won't reveal for which countries. Oh, very so interesting. these things could be used for border control. They could be used for, you know, it's only a matter of time before our police start using them, I would say, and we don't stop that as well. Yeah, I, uh, I'm somewhat optimistic in my intuition that if we can halt the progress at the level of, of the UN and, and kind of military um, military applications, that that sort of trend uh, may in fact be able to to continue and trickle to kind of down the 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 chain into individual countries and and sort of bans on on police use and and whatnot. I think I think that I hope so. Yes, I, I hope so, and I, I have an inkling for whatever reason. Uh, that that is a win as high as you're talking about with the the CCW there, who I'll have to do my own homework about because I've never heard of them. But that that UN committee, um, I have a feeling that that progress there would imply uh, progress elsewhere. And and again again to my intuition, it would appear as though that would be uh, for the greater good. So I will be well. well yeah, there's, go ahead. There's, a, there's an absolutely separate committee called the Human Rights Council of the UN, huh. and they're the ones who deal with, deal with civil stuff. And there's already been one report to them about lethal autonomous robots. And we're hoping that they will take up the issue as well, because that will satisfy the civil side. And like yourself, I'm optimistic about it. Yep, indeed. I think progress in one place will hopefully lead to it elsewhere. I think it's a very rational argument, and I am wishing you the best in your pursuits there, Noel. Thank you so much for being able to share your insights on the Tech Emergence Podcast. And that wraps up this episode on the Tech Emergence Podcast. Thanks for being here. And remember to subscribe on iTunes to stay on top of the latest news breaks, researcher perspectives, and entrepreneur interviews in artificial intelligence, neurotechnology, and more. And we want to hear from you as well. So be sure to leave a review on iTunes, which are always appreciated, or contact us directly at info at techemergence.com. And remember, all of our entrepreneur interviews and interviews with top researchers from around the world, from Stanford to Oxford and beyond, can be found right on our main site at techemergence.com. Remember to sign up for the newsletter while you're there. So with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Figella signing off, and I'll see you next week.